Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon and we're here for the August episode of the Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I am very good and I think we are here also sort of uh, Perry five-year anniversary of Simulcast, actually. It just strikes oh, no. me. Yeah. Yes, Jesse sent us a photo of a tweet he did way back in 2016 where we were recording our first ever episode uh, about the future vision of sim- simulation in healthcare and we were reviewing... Dave Garber's classic uh, paper. Um, but we've moved on up to 2021 for the fifth birthday episode. Is that right? That's correct. We're looking at some modern stuff today. Shall I just jump right in? Yeah, jump right in, Ben. Yeah, great. So the first paper I've got, which was uh, recommended and sent to us by Jenny Rudolph, uh, was Association of Simulation Training with Rates of Medical Malpractice Claims Among Obstetrician Gynecologists. And it's by Adam Schaefer et al. and published in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2021. Uh, so this is a retrospective analysis comparing malpractice insurance claim rates of almost 300 obstetrician gynecologists in Boston specifically before and after they went to simulation training in the last 20 years or so. And spoiler alert, Vic, it appears to show that sim training with a focus on CRM in particular does have an association with decreased claim rates and that there is a dose response to it as well, which I found quite interesting. The paper basically starts out by outlining the problem, ostensibly that about 2 to 16% of deliveries in the US have some kind of adverse event and that 40% of those events were likely preventable, and that 70% of them have something to do with communication problems, institutional hierarchies, and an inability for a group of people to work together effectively as a team. And so particularly with this heavy emphasis on teamwork and communication, the article highlights simulation as a potential intervention to prevent these events, and then by extension, decrease malpractice claims. And it does seem that American malpractice insurers are in support of this hypothesis, given that they offer a discount in insurance premiums for obstetricians attending a course hosted by the Center for Medical Simulation. So either they've got some data they already know about or they've read this paper well in advance. The course uh, that is described in the paper is uh, described as featuring a series of low-frequency, high-acuity sims focused around team training and CRM held between 2002 and 2019. And so the authors source data from the malpractice insurers specifically regarding any malpractice claims against the participants. And they looked at the rates over the whole study period, but I thought it was quite clever that they also looked one and two years prior to the simulation course and one and two years post the simulation course. And this was done to try and factor in the fact that there are trends nationally and in particular malpractice claims as a whole decreasing in general. And this was actually uh, a thing that came up in last month's paper from Sarah Jansen's as well about how do you assess something when you're getting a really beautiful, rich, long period of data and and try and suss out the differences given the the differences in trends as well. So they also... The the fragility of historical control groups. Is that the fancy name for it? No, that's just what I think. Oh, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there is a term, 
<laughs> there is there is research terminology relating to fragility, which means how many people would have had to have a different result in a study for the uh, statistically significant difference to not be true. Um, so I've maybe taken a little bit of liberty with that terminology. <laughs> but yes, there is a problem with historical controls, and you're quite right. That can be mitigated by looking at the little shorter time periods that they did. Yes. Um, and so they also looked at whether there was a dose response for their eager beaver OBGYNs who'd done one, two, or three simulation courses and whether there was any impact on indemnity paid, malpractice claims outcomes, and severity of injury. So what were the results? Well, malpractice claim rates were significantly lower post-simulation training for the full study period. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of numbers now, but there were 112 versus 5.7 claims per 100 physician coverage years. And the two years pre-simulation and post-simulation training is actually 9.2 versus 5.4 claims per 100 physician coverage years. For the one year pre and post-training comparison, the decrease in claim rates wasn't significant, but there was still a trend, um, which I thought was a little bit interesting. But I guess when you think about the relative infrequency of getting a malpractice claim, it doesn't make sense that you would gradually start upping the total number of claims the longer you look at that number. So as of over two years, you're going to have a clearer difference. Attending more than one sim session in particular was associated with a greater reduction in claim rates and post-simulation claim, claim rates for physicians who attended one, two or three or more simulations were 6.3, 2.1 and then 1.3 respectively. So compared with pre-SIM training, there was no significant difference in the median or mean indemnity paid uh, and the percent of claims on which an indemnity payment was made or the median severity of injury after simulation training. So it doesn't sound like for the claims that were made, there was any much difference in cost, but that the frequency of the claims goes down. And I guess when you look at the average cost of those claims, which I think from memory was in the low millions, even a small drop in frequency is going to have a very big impact on the bottom line. Thoughts, mm, Vic? Maybe those, maybe those insurers knew something when they uh, offered subsidised attendance of people at simulation training. Well, Ben, this is great and I want to believe. It's like the X-Files. I want to believe. Uh, and I think to sort of revisit that sort of background question, you know, one of the hopes for SIM training has always been to promote patient safety, but we've just been a bit of light on on so-called proof. Um, and so does SIM really help is, is a really good question. Uh, as you say, this is um, really looks good in terms of the pre-post uh, difference as well as the dose relationship. But as they point out so clearly in their discussion, the issue is always that association is not causation. Um, historical controls always have confounders and it may be that all sorts of things were happening. Uh, the short fixed period helps, but in some ways the very fact that there is a gradation in that fixed time period suggests that something is else is in action. And I guess what is the independent impact of simulation over whatever other temporal trends there were in malpractice claims can be difficult to uh, tease out. I think the, um, the ideal way obviously would have had to have had a control group who didn't do any simulation. 
and they didn't have that. But I can see how that is very hard to convince people to enrol in a study or look at data from people who haven't had the opportunity to do some training. But I would have thought, depending on how embedded the malpractice insurers were in their research, they actually potentially could have done matched controls, I would have thought, but um, I'm not an expert on this kind of um, research methodology. The other thing that I suppose is worth pointing out is that adverse events aren't the same as malpractice claims. And I think we know there's actually a pretty poor overlap and malpractice claims are definitely influenced by ability to communicate with patients and caregivers, etc., uh, over and above adverse events, which are affected by good communication and teamwork, of course, but perhaps not quite to the same extent as communication with patients is. And then I suppose the last thing while we're just thinking about, well, what confounders might there be, I, I was this dose response thing. Again, I want to believe that, but I suppose it reminds me of those uh, that paper we looked at where the hospitals that did more SIM training had lower mortality for their arrest cases and so did better. And you just don't know if this is a great hospital and a great hospital both has good clinical outcomes and a great hospital says we should have a SIM program. So I wonder if these excellent obstetricians who had the lower claims were also people who went, yeah, you beauty, I want to go and do SIM. And so they signed up for three three sessions because they were people who thought about this anyway, not people who were shaped by the simulation training itself. So the cause and effect could be endlessly debated. I still want to believe and I still think this is well done and I still think it gives us a, a nice signal. And uh, and I guess, to be honest, the proof of the pudding is if they keep on investing uh, money from the insurers in the attendance of the sim people, then uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's probably good enough. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. So you're scully in this scenario just for me to clarify our current dynamic. But Anything that puts me closer to Gillian Anderson is fine. <laughs> That's staying That's, in, by the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think I think those are great points and, and really um, useful and specific critiques to think about when approaching this paper. Um, I still think, again, it helps build a narrative of um, what does a successful uh, obstetric and gynecology service look like and what are some of the key features that might lead to a place that gets decreased frames. Uh decrease claims rather not frames but uh yeah i think it, it's fair enough that we can't and, and i think what is great about the paper is that they don't make any uh false claims or overreach in that they're very sort of explicit and clear about what they are claiming uh and i i still think it's something that's worth uh, celebrating so oh, absolutely I, I think all the things that i just said they said in their limitations mm. and they're very clear about that this is association not causation so yeah i i'm totally there so I think this paper, in addition to that, is a very nice segue to one that uh, Komal Bajaz had sent me a, a while back. Um, and this is not a simulation paper at all. It's entitled Building the Business Case for Quality Improvement, a Framework for Evaluating Return on Investment. Uh, the authors are Amar Shah and Stephen Course, and it's published in the Future Health Healthcare Journal in 2018. And uh, basically, uh, it's about the importance of evaluating our QI processes, but more in particular, how we sell those interventions to our institutions, which I think you'll agree with me, Vic, is a, a very important skill to develop as um, as you sort of move up the chain in simulation uh, in mm. healthcare. 
Well, very early on, I'd say. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I have conversations with people around the place, these are the things that they find hard. How do you convince people to give you money? Uh, and one of the ways is to have a really good return on investment uh, pitch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the paper is described as a framework to help identify, understand and evaluate return on investment from large scale application of uh, QI uh, interventions in healthcare providers. And it was developed at East London NHS Foundation Trust, which is a provider of mainly mental health and community health services. And the paper basically puts forward the argument that, you know, while uh, it's often a challenge for healthcare leaders and boards to articulate that return on investment from applying QI at scale in order to create and approve a business case for this investment. I think we've both acknowledged that that's very common. Certainly not something that's very well covered in med school, I'd have to say, uh, quite comfortably. I think that's okay. We've got other things to learn in med school, but then we sort of focus all our training on getting better at healthcare and then suddenly uh, we're asking for funding. The framework is essentially a list of six key dot points to consider. Revenue, cost reduction, cost avoidance, productivity and efficiency, staff experience, and patient, carer, or family experience outcomes. And the paper then provides a series of practical case studies outlining within their service what their their service was able to show improvements on in all of these different areas, as well as some of the challenges in measuring them and some pragmatic approaches to dealing with this. So in one example, they describe their team's efforts to decrease ward occupancy rates in an older person's mental health ward by better communication with liaison services in the acute hospital, daily review of patients, discharge checklists, etc. And because of their ability to actually drop ward occupancies by around 50%, they were able to merge two wards and save over a million pounds, uh, which sounds pretty good in theory. Uh, They also break down some examples of calculating the cost avoidance of your interventions in order to demonstrate its value, which I think many of us in healthcare professionals don't really think about much. I know, for example, in Stork, where I work, we spend a lot of time creating resources for other regional educators to use, but we're not very good at calculating or estimating that cost or time savings for those people. And it's a reasonably compelling piece of data if we have it. So I don't know if this paper will change how you sim, but it might change how long or how much a sim department is funded for. And I just wanted to share it as a useful little reference uh, for thinking about a structure for justifying what you're doing and the impact that it's having. Yeah, I agree. I think the more guidance we can have in this regard is uh, is excellent. The I've had a look at some of these return on investment papers and it's tricky because it seems like it's a meeting of domains between educators and people who operate in the sort of social sciences uh, with those who like to do a lot of maths and calculate things. Of course, the risk is always that then we pursue things that can be counted rather than necessarily the things that we should do. Um, I am actually a supporter of the idea we should have a, some discipline about what we do. The, if Particularly if we're using a lot of resources, we should be able to look people in the eye and say it was worth it. Uh, and I think this does say maybe think a little bit more broadly about how you demonstrate that. It doesn't have to be some uh, large-scale thing and there are ways of measuring some of these uh, important things like, for instance, staff experience, which I think is something where we perhaps underestimate our impact and some of the measures they use there in terms of retention and other things are actually really important. Uh, And I haven't seen a lot of work that uses those sorts of things as their outcome measures. So uh, it may prompt some more people using that framework in their own work. So, yeah, fantastic. All right, we might move on then to evaluating yes. trauma team leadership. 
Yes, well, um, so to give you the title of this paper, uh, Development and Evaluation of the Taxonomy of Trauma Leadership Skills, Shortened for Observation and Reflection in Training, uh, described as a practical tool for observing and reflecting on trauma leadership performance. And this is by Nico Leenstra uh, and a group in the Netherlands published in February 2021 in Simulation and Healthcare. So I suppose, Ben, we should make this a bit interactive here. Uh, are you a good trauma team leader and how do you know? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, I would say I would feel confident that I'm a very good pediatric resuscitation team leader and that very it very rarely involves trauma and that the cognitive uh, extra load of the trauma would uh, drop me down a few pegs. Right, and okay. And has anyone ever given you feedback in a structured way on your team leadership in trauma or otherwise? No. They've given, oh. well, I guess if lots of praise, but well, just feedback. Nice. But I haven't yes, ever okay. had someone sit down and go, let's talk about what you could and couldn't do well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think your experience is probably shared by many. Mm-hmm. And you're still a very young uh, emergency physician. So, uh, <laughs> so this isn't yeah. just that uh, old people haven't had feedback. This is, I think, has been a, a deficit. So to give a sort of background to this paper, uh, Essentially, this group were trying to use simulation to develop and test what they describe as a practical observation tool for basically observing and then giving feedback to people on their trauma leadership skills. And I guess the background to this is we know leadership is important. It has an impact on how teams behave and presumably on patient outcomes. We also know that there's many words describing these so-called non-technical skills such as facilitating team communication, managing coordination, uh, And we also know that SIM has been one of the ways that we've tried to train teams and team leaders in order to do that. So what would be really useful if we were giving this feedback is to have a lovely tool that described what is good. And so uh, these folks aim to do that using a thing called a behavioural marker tool uh, approach, and there's a whole science to that. But essentially we want something, imagine a form in front of you that's specific to the trauma environment and focuses on the leadership skills that people can actually look at. It's of the right length and tangible enough that people can have those then feedback conversations. So the group that did this work had previously developed a very granular, very detailed taxonomy of trauma leadership skills. Now, they make reference to this in this paper, but it sounded complicated. There were five skill categories, 37 skill elements, 67 examples of excellent behaviours. So it was really comprehensive, but very complicated. And so it would have been very hard for someone to use if they were watching people perform in the moment. And the quote that they have is that we have to strike a balance between conciseness and specificity. So what did they do? They had basically two phases then. They tried to refine this tool down to a practical level and they did that by experts watching videos and thinking how would I refine down this complex tool to one that's more usable. And then they had a phase two, which was their live testing, where instructors actually had the tool and they uh, watched team leaders in these ATLS refresher courses in the Netherlands. And they did this kind of iteratively and with multidisciplinary input. So the raters weren't all emergency physicians. They were from different disciplines and different professions. And they ran them through things that would be familiar if you do trauma training, a variety of clinical cases. Although, interestingly, the teams were all doctors playing roles and they were pretty small teams. There was a team leader, another consultant, a nurse and a scribe. So I wouldn't say these were really um, highly authentic trauma scenarios, 
but anyway, they ran them through that and then the instructors worked in pairs and at the end of the day they sort of went, yeah, the tool was good or it wasn't good and gave some ratings of it. Just because I think one of the most important things that is worth looking at this paper would be to actually see what the tool looks like. So to give you a little bit of an idea, they have some uh, broad brushstrokes such as a skill category like information coordination and with the, what they're looking for is for the person to be giving summaries or to be thinking aloud or under the category of action coordination they're looking for them for giving concrete instructions and uh, giving efficient task sequencing of what needs to happen so these were you could tell these were pretty tangible things they were looking for uh, and then in their when they reported their results they basically quoted from those instructors about uh, how it was useful for them to actually have examples of behaviours to look for uh, that some of them they hadn't considered before and it also they felt it could make them more critical and precise. So their table three is probably the bit to really look for, this final what they call TTS short, so taxonomy of trauma skills short, uh, that is divided into how does this team leader perform in the briefing phase and then in this patient handling phase? So I quite liked the tool that they came up with. Uh, as I said, it's relatively simple. I could see myself kind of holding it in my hand and watching a registrar do that. Or I could imagine getting feedback myself and someone saying, let's just work through this and it having a bit of logical structure. So for me, Ben, the sort of take-home messages are, one, you can use simulation to uh, test and refine an assessment tool like this. Uh, and the second is I think the actual words and what they came up with is useful because it gives some vocabulary and concepts if you're debriefing or coaching teams or team leaders. So that were my take-homes, but uh, what did you think? Yeah, it's interesting because I had some really mixed feel feelings on this one, even though I really enjoyed it as a paper and I enjoyed their process. And I think it seems sensible, but I had a lot less interest in the tool that they developed than in their wider list of leadership behaviours uh, that they had broken down. And I guess, as you know, we sort of share a certain level of frustration with teamwork training degenerating into people saying you should have done more closed loops. So it was really nice and refreshing to look at sort of almost an algorithmic approach of can we sort of analyse and analyse down the individual components to effective trauma team leaders' behaviours and then name them so that we can identify them, assess them and teach them. And I guess the tool itself for me is certainly sort of for the way my brain works, it's still unusable in a crisis because it, that level of complexity in addition to delivering an actual resuscitation would be too much extraneous load for me on an already often busy team leader brain. Um, and I do note, you know, the very neutral feedback that the team was provided with from the simulation participants and debriefers. There were some who liked it, there were some who didn't at all, and there was a, there was a lot of sort of neutral responses. Uh, but I do think that the contents of the tool could really add value to the conversation about what an effective team leader looks like, um, and particularly in pre-resuscitation or educational conversations uh, where we can really list and name objective behaviours that are identified. And I remember Laura Rock sort of talking about uh, teamwork and communication is not magic. It's not an X factor. It can be broken down and taught. And I think this is a great example of really following that through in a very analytical way. My only other sort of slight hypothetical concern, I guess, is that uh, within the paper, I also talk about a tool like this being handed to the debriefers or the, to the observers. And I do think it has the opportunity to multiply our natural bad habits 
at focusing most of the content of the debrief on the medical team leaders uh, and, again, overvaluing leadership and undervaluing the contribution of the rest of the team. And I certainly know if this was placed in my hand at an organisational level at a SIM course, then during the debrief I'd find it very challenging to not spend the entire time going over the team leaders' behaviours. So I, I really liked the process. I'm not sure I'd be using the tool. Hmm, that's very interesting and, and I agree that... Uh, one of the benefits of these behavioural marker scales is it gives examples without creating, I think, a term you've used before, a cognitive prison of uh, you must use these words and here is the magic script because we know it is very context dependent. Uh, I can give you an example of how I think it would be used because, as an example, we do do these big large-scale trauma sims and they involve multiple players. And, in fact, one of the things that's often missing in that conversation is the poor team leader doesn't get much individualised feedback and often taps me on the shoulder later and says, how do you think I went, Vic? And I'm going, well, I wasn't really watching you. Uh, so we have uh, designated another uh, emergency physician to watch the team leader and have a separate uh, individual conversation after that, which is a one-on-one, -on -one, and I think that's a perfect use for this. But oh, I think I that's that. a very it's yeah. a very niche uh, way of doing it um, that I think we have the opportunity to because of the way we set up our trauma sims. So I think people do need to be careful how they use any tool. Mm. Thanks. Hmm. All right. Well, moving on from team leaders to serious gaming. Uh, are you a gamer, Ben? I'm a heavy gamer, yes. And, what do you play? Uh, at, well, at the moment, you know, now I have a, a seven-year-old, so uh, we've been playing a fair amount of Nintendo lately. It's been nice. So he's just gone full Minecraft as of the last two weeks. Uh, wow. But that was remarkable developmental stage to go through from dinosaur obsession to Minecraft in the space of like a week. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you're down a dark hole now for the next... <laughs> For a long time, from what I can see. A long yeah, time, yeah. exactly. All right, well, we're going to talk about serious games, uh, which I think may be some people's excuse for saying, no, it's really work, honey. Uh, but the title of this paper is Efficacy of Serious Games in Healthcare Professions Education, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Uh, and this is by Marc-Andre Mahou Cadet. Uh, and a team who are largely from Montreal in Canada. And this is also from Simulation in Healthcare in June 2021. And by way of kind of background, I think the sort of serious games world uh, is an overlap with the simulation world, but often I have seen the serious games people and issues being discussed at simulation conferences. And uh, I can see why, because in many ways uh, there is an, a simulation could be seen as a serious game and vice versa. But they offer us a definition at the beginning of this, that a serious game is an interactive and entertaining software designed primarily with an educational purpose, which gives us a pretty broad brushstroke. And I can think of a range of things from uh, the original Vlad or Micro Sims that were around about 20 years ago, which were, again, a computer-based simulation of a resuscitation, uh, through to Eric Gantworker's uh, Level X, which I think might be the state of the art these days where you can do a bronchoscopy or various other procedures just on your phone um, involving actually manipulating instruments and looking down an airway. 
but they also give us an idea about what are the elements. If you're going to have a serious game, what does it need to have? And it needs to have this true gameplay experience where you're trying to move on from different levels and achieve different things. Playful design elements. I don't know how you exactly decide on the inclusion and exclusion criteria for if a design element is playful or not. Uh, perhaps most importantly, though, from an educational point of view, is immediate feedback and results. And we know from a lot of games, you know, oh, well, if you don't manage to dodge the bullets, you die, uh, and then you go have to go and do that level again. Well, actually, that does have quite a deal of educational impact if you apply that to serious games. So the question, they said, well, this is all well and good. Sounds like fun and it's playful, but do they actually work uh, for engagement or for learning outcomes? And uh, so their aim, as they described it, was to <clears throat> evaluate the efficacy of serial, serious games on engagement and learning outcomes. They looked at randomised control trials between 2005 and 2019 with, with serious games as an intervention. And they described their search strategy in detail and their quality and bias reviews. And uh, they basically came up with 37 studies in their systematic review, 29 in their meta-analysis with enough quantitative data to do some comparisons. And there's a whole range of uh, serious games in there, procedurally focused, cognitive skills, knowledge, uh, and also across professions. There was probably a predominance of medical students, um, but also nursing students and a few post-grad contexts. Uh, and drum roll, serious games did not lead to better behavioural engagement, nor knowledge acquisition, nor cognitive or procedural skill development, nor attitude change or behaviour change. Maybe they found a small difference in confidence in skills. That's a bit of a shake-up, Ben, a bit disappointing. It's a bit of a bummer, yeah. Yes. <laughs> So what do we take away from this? Well, you know, there's always two conclusions, isn't there? there? That there is a difference, but we weren't able to detect it um, because of the kind of measures that we can have, we've got available to us. In this case, I'm not sure that that's uh, an easy one to find because they did have a diversity of measures. Some of these things can be well measured when it comes to procedural learning curves and, and other things. Or the alternative explanation is there is actually no difference. And again, is that because serious games aren't good or because the ones that were measured just aren't designed well? Maybe there is a holy grail of serious gaming, but we haven't yet found it. And they talk a little bit about that. Maybe if uh, things had a better conceptual framework or better educational uh, principles underpinning them. Uh, one of my other alternate hypotheses is that's because it doesn't really matter what we do as teachers and that ultimately educational outcomes are about the learners. And uh, so that's a bit of a nihilistic kind of uh, way of looking at this data. But I guess I'm not sure what to do with it, Ben, because it does seem like they did very good quality work. Yeah, look, this sort of supports a long-term bias of mine against sort of serious games not necessarily being all they're cracked up to be, except of course, for where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, which was an excellent, serious game. <laughs> I learned much about the national flags of the world when I was nine. Um, but I think it's important, too, to acknowledge probably like a real-life gap between consumer and educator here that, you know, I don't think is really explored. But, you know, the reality is that professional gaming budgets uh, and serious gaming budgets are not the same. And the size and breadth of talent that professional um, 
companies have available to them is just incredible and enormous. And I think, uh, so even from an engagement perspective, you've got a generation of people out there who are used to consuming sort of five-star AAA games with an incredible yeah. level of passion and polish. And then uh, that becomes our norm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then we chuck people into some very well-intentioned and passionately designed serious games that are just not at the same level of sophistication given the budget and the time and also the potential audience that they're designed for. You can't spend millions and millions on this if, if you know, a lot of people aren't going to buy it. And so there's just, for me, a lot of dissonance in that because you jump in and the difference in quality between what you're used to playing in your uh, social sort of recreational life and then... Um, what you're trying to play as a serious game is, is actually um, somewhat discombobulating sometimes, uh, particularly when we're talking about measuring engagement. I'm not surprised that people weren't feeling particularly engaged from the serious gaming experiences that I've had previously. Um, mm. So, yes, we could ask, uh, we could point out that this is, again, a sort of which is better biomedical-style randomised control trial approach, that it, it's not going to be the best way to ask what is and what isn't effective in serious gaming. But I do think, like you mentioned, it's fair to say that there's not really any breadcrumbs here that seem worth following into pretty expensive woods. So, look, I applaud the author's findings, and I was honestly surprised a little bit to see that they still were very diplomatic in their conclusions. Uh, and avoiding being particularly damning about where <laughs> what they found. But instead, you know, going back to some really sensible first principles, which is considering what you're trying to teach and don't assume that games will necessarily be more engaging than other educational strategies. Because I still got to say that a small group discussion with a whiteboard and a group of passionate people can be pretty engaging as well. Mm, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I guess watch this space because... This is speaking, it comes back to that uh, paper you just talked about with the return on investment, isn't it? But you couldn't really go to your exec and say, I really want to roll out this fabulous, uh, serious game for my trainees because it's cool and uh, it's really fun. Well, if it doesn't make a difference, then we can't hand on heart say that. So I guess I I think there'll be more work in this area. Maybe technology will come on board and we certainly know with some of the stuff that's happening in virtual reality uh, that that's getting down to a price point that maybe this does look more attractive. So I don't think we've seen the last of serious games uh, and maybe that is just not the best way to uh, group this together. Maybe actually we should be thinking in a different way of looking at the kind of studies and interventions that people are putting together. Absolutely. All right, well, it's been another great chat, Ben. Uh, thank you so much for sharing some of these papers with us and thank you to uh, those Jenny Rudolph and Komal Bajaj who uh, suggested a couple of these papers. We're always keen for people to send us papers they would like us to talk about if they're interested in our opinions uh, and to highlight, uh, and we don't mind if they're authors, if they're prepared to subject themselves to our uh, amateurish uh, critique, uh, or if they're people who've read great papers and think that they are worthy of sharing with our simulation community, we would love to do that. So, you know, where to find us, we're at www.simulationpodcast.com, or of course, Ben and Vic are on Twitter and feel free to direct message us if you don't know our emails. Absolutely. All right, Ben. We'll look forward to uh, talking to you again in September. Yes, absolutely. And I think uh, our good friend Ian Summers has suggested one for next month. So we might have uh, a crack at that. Excellent. Shout out to Ian Summers at Monash. It's uh, be great to see and hear from him again shortly. Great. Have a good night. Thanks, Ben. Bye.